All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Hebrews. We are in chapter 10. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Let's have our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, well, as we go into chapter 10, the last part of it, uh, verse 26 and following, maybe it would be worthwhile to back up just a second to get a running start. In chapter 10, verse 19, I set forward the reading that, uh, a couple of different readings. One is to see all of this as talk of transitioning into heaven. The other way of, of thinking about this section is to talk about the divine service. But this will help give us context for better understanding what comes in verse 26 and following. So just to pick up at chapter 10, verse 19, even though we've covered these, We'll get a run-up to the new material. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So, in other words, because we have these things in Christ Jesus, whether he's leaning toward what happens when we die and go to heaven or whether he's leaning toward the reality of the divine service, which I think is more convincing, especially... Verse 22, sprinkled clean, our, with our hearts sprinkled clean, pleasant te- present tense by the blood, uh, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and then our bodies washed with pure water, present tense, reference to baptism. So whether he's speaking about heavenly realities or divine service realities, the point is, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Again, the pastoral circumstance is that his people would waver, would return to this lesser covenant in order to keep themselves from suffering. So, all of the rhetoric serves this point at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, namely the day of Christ's return, drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We saw in the book of Hebrews a section, yeah, it's very serious, a section very similar to this back in Hebrews chapter 6, if you recall, and 
There in Hebrews chapter 6, we have the same emotional and absolute appeal that if you fall away, you're not coming back. And how could you come back? Because you know Christ, you know His gospel, you know His means of grace and gifts. And so if you turn your back on these despising them, these are the very things by which He'd bring you back. How do you think you're going to come back? You're not. That's the rhetorical punch of this section. And so we have a very similar uh, idea here. Again, I think best to read this in context of verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. So the rhetorical punch of this section is, look, if you turn your back, if you go down the path of continued sin, which ultimately leads to apostasy, but sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, then there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. Now, I think the key to understanding this section too is when he contrasts uh, verse 28 and the old covenant of Moses with verse 29 and the new covenant of Jesus' blood. So, verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law or covenant of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if you turn away from that covenant, you face bodily death. If you turn away from Christ's covenant, you face spiritual death, eternal death. That's verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? Not Moses, but the Son of God. Not the blood, not the Old covenant with the blood of bulls, but profaning the new covenant, the blood of the covenant, the blood of Christ, by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. All right, so what do you do by, um, you know, what is this, what is this kind of sin? You know, in a sense, it's not just any old apostasy because Peter denies Christ and falls away three times. But what is the nature of his apostasy? Does he reject Christ as the sacrifice for sins? No. Does he profane the blood of Jesus shed on the cross and into the chalice? Does he reject and despise and and blaspheme and profane it? No. Um, Does he outrage the spirit of grace? No, because the Spirit of Grace was willing to convert him again. So we can see then that there is apostasy that falls outside of the scope of this, and yet we can all imagine apostasy that would go exactly like this. I mean, I I think of myself uh, that as a Lutheran pastor, if I apostatize, now you can apostatize out of weakness. Why did Peter apostatize? Because he vehemently hated the Lord Jesus and everything that he had come to do and bring? No, because he was scared that what happened to Jesus would happen to him. So this is an apostasy of weakness, and we could all fall very easily into an apostasy of weakness um, from which we can recover or be recovered. Now, if I think, though, in terms of, you know, if I just, and why I would do this, I have no idea, but if I just decided enough's enough, I'm going to turn my back on God. I despise him for who he is. I despise his son for who he is. I despise his cross. I despise the chalice that he gives, the new covenant in his blood shed for me for my forgiveness. I despise the Holy Spirit and everything he's done for me, enlightening me in my baptism, leading me to faith, and thus I end up um, outraging the spirit of grace. I mean, is it possible to conceive of yourself as falling into a spiritual state where it would be impossible from which you could be saved or restored? Yeah, I think so, because these are the very things that people are going to come bring to you to save you and restore you. They're going to say, Jesus loves you. I hate Jesus, you know. He gives you his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's demonic to me. It's as good as the devil. It's as good as the unholy spirit. Be gone from me. You know, how are you going to ever recover from this sort of thing? You're not going to. And I think that that's the point that the author of Hebrews is doing here in chapter 6, and then here again in chapter 10. Now, let's let's pause there and see if uh, you have the sense of this, if you're confident in the sense of this, or if if you have any questions or concerns about it. So, was there a hand back here? I know Chris has got a hand up here, but I wanted to see if... Okay, 
Chris, you're, you're first. Two questions, because you, you're right, because then you look at Judas Iscariot. He despised Christ, and he never repented. And, right. And then the other one was your analysis. I don't think God would let you particularly go that far, because I think he would beat the crud out of you before <laughs> you got that far. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's inconceivable to think that way as a Christian in good standing. It's not it's not like a boastful, proud thing. I mean, Saint Paul says, "If you stand, take heed lest you fall." That you know. But again, it ought to be unthinkable to us because why would I ever turn away from my heavenly Father, my loving Savior, His Spirit of Grace, who's redeemed and saved me so many countless times? And um, how? You know, so yeah, it should be unthinkable to us. But the warning, the warning in which these people find themselves is persecution is coming. They know it. They feel it. And there's a great temptation to go. And, and you can think of how in their mind it's just a compromise. We'll just go back to the old covenant. We were okay under the old covenant. We'll just go back to that again. And going back to the old covenant, you are despising and trampling the new. You can't do this. And if you do this, this will be your spiritual state. Now, again, think of this in terms of pastoral care. Is more. I, I would honestly say that this is the better way to look at it. Think of this in terms of pastoral care rather than some golden book of, of rules that's fallen from the sky. Okay, And then I think you're going to gain the pastoral sense in which He's warning them of this. It very well could come to this. But precisely because he's warning and articulating and spelling it all out, exactly what their apostasy will mean, it's meant to shame and shock them into, into realizing the, the insanity of apostatizing. You see? And I think that that's a much more honest way to look at this rhetoric than to see, like, okay, well, in order to commit this sin, let's see, what are the three things I have to do? Uh, you know, I have to, I have to trample over the, the cross of Jesus so there's no sacrifice of sins. I have to profane his blood. Okay, well, I've done those two things, but I haven't outraged the spirit of grace, so I guess I'm okay there. Or I have to do these three things before I fall. No. So it makes more sense to just see this as a pastor pleading with his people saying, if you go willingly, knowingly, persistently doing this, and that's kind of the idea of going on sinning deliberately, um, then this will be your final state. And maybe it will, maybe it won't, but it's good for him to warn them because it could very well, in fact, be their final state. All right, let's see if there's any other questions or thoughts on this. Fair enough, okay. Nobody wants to argue. Sometimes this is a controversial uh, passage, but hopefully I've explained it in a good enough way, in a Christian way. It's very serious. Yeah, it's very serious. It's very absolutist. And, you know, I don't want to take anything away from the idea of sinning deliberately. I think, again, that's in view here. That has to do with apostasy. It has to do with forsaking gathering together, forsaking the communion, the divine service. Um, again, out of out of fear and out of this idea of it's not that big of a deal if we just switch back to the old covenant. Um, but are, are there are there broader ways to apply these verses? Yeah, probably so. I mean, if someone persistently, impenitently follows a path of sin, do they eventually cast themselves out of salvation? Yes. If there are various attempts to bring them back via the spirit of grace, the blood of the covenant, the sacrifice of Jesus, and they as it were, spit upon and despise each one of those, then, yeah, they kind of back themselves into this very description, this very spiritual dynamic. So that's why remaining in a state of perpetual penitence is essential. It's essentially remaining in a state of grace. To repent is to live an entire life of repentance, and only those sins for which we are not repentant do we not receive forgiveness. Yes, please. Uh, question, Pastor. Um, the books or issues on once saved, always saved, or can you lose your salvation? Does this encompass that question? Not or, really is the short answer. I mean, you okay. would definitely say that he is assuming he's speaking to people who believe and they can fall away. So there is that 
I mean, you could point to this text and say there's that clear implication. If you, if these people were saved and couldn't possibly fall away, why is he wasting his ink? Right? So he believes that there are Christians and that these Christians can fall away in such a way that they can't be recovered. And he's warning them against that. So I suppose in that direction, yeah. But it seems to me it would be not be a very easy thing because if you were saved, that's like saying, now I want, making a decision, now I want to be unsaved. <laughs> you know, you know, meaning yeah. if, if I see the Holy Spirit work, he's going to work, work, work with a person to, you know, to convict or whatever. I can't conceive of anybody just up and walking away unless they just want to get to the point and say, you know, I just want to live for the flesh. I don't yeah, well, that's largely what it is. Okay. And that's largely what's in play here. To live for the flesh would be to avoid suffering, uh, ostensibly. But there may be other perks and advantages. I mean, we can think of, there are unfortunately famous biblical apostates. Uh, Judas would arguably be one. Maybe even more clearly would be someone like, uh, Saul. Or even if you, even if you want to, just leave aside the end state of someone like Solomon. It's very clear that Solomon had a period of apostasy. David had a period of apostasy from which he recovered, uh, but there was no there was no guarantee. I mean, he says, and from his own lips, he renders judgment, says such a man should die. So there are biblical examples of those who believed and fell away. There's the warning of Christ of those who believe and fall away for whatever reasons. Persecution among them of course, and then the cares of this world, pleasures of the flesh, that kind of thing being the other. Please. Um, Long ago, I had a friend who would not take communion on certain Sundays, saying that she wasn't worthy, that Mm -hmm. she had done things throughout the week or something, and she just couldn't Mm -hmm. come forward. And we went back and forth on that, but is that apostatizing or is that just self-examination i mean I, I i never could understand why she wouldn't want that forgiveness I, that's not time. a typical form of apostasy it is a oh. spiritual condition uh, people find themselves in from time to time uh, when one feels that way the very best thing or the very best way to advise them is to see the pastor because what really needs to take place is some form of confession absolution where those sins are absolved and removed such that the person um, then feels in, like in good conscience they can come to the altar. There is a spirit, I mean, in one sense, there's this kind of ham-fisted Lutheran response of like, well, you're feeling your sins. It's precisely forgiveness that Jesus has at the table, so just come. But there's a more nuanced thing that can happen in our souls where you feel unworthy to come, and it's very difficult to even commune. Sometimes it's very difficult to even pray because your conscience is so mangled up, you feel unworthy. And it's almost the more you're told or the more you remind yourself that God hears your prayers no matter what, or God's, or Christ is here to give his body and blood for you for the forgiveness of these specific sins, the more that dynamic, that nuanced dynamic in the soul just feels crushed because you're crushed by the, not only by the, the wickedness of your sin, but by the goodness of God. And so to have that dealt with in confession absolution really is probably the right order because you feel the full weight. You let the full weight come out and you let that personal reconciliation take place such that then your conscience is freed to pray believing that God will hear you without simply just stopping prayer because it's unworthy or come to the altar and receive his gifts rather than tremble because you can't because you just truly believe that it's almost precisely his grace that keeps you away, his goodness in the face of your wickedness that keeps you away. where the profound gift of uh, confession absolution comes in. It's a delicate spiritual condition that one finds themselves in. I have trouble with those who fall right in between. They're not doing the total apostasy. Mm-hmm. They believe that Christ, everything that's said and done about him, by him, etc. But they're not coming to church, don't feel it's that important. Yes. That's where I have trouble figuring out. Yes, the, the slow death. The, the slow yeah, the slow death of a severed member from the body of Christ saying, here here I am, I'm still alive, I could be reattached anytime I wanted. 
well, how long does that last? I mean, on one hand, we pray that it lasts forever. We pray that God's grace would extend even beyond this faithlessness. But it is faithless toward God and loveless toward the body. And um, we feel that too, even though we want the person to be saved. So one of the ways that we could think of that kind of sin or sinful dynamic is acedia or acadia in Greek, acedia in Latin, acadia in Latin, acedia in English, I think. But it's, it's a kind of spiritual apathy and you just don't care. And you just say, I'm good. Christ has died for me. This, we can increase this when we do bare minimum Christianity. Jesus died for you. That, so the bare minimum you need to have is faith. And then we ignore things like neglecting to meet one and, together. We, and this, of course, is nothing but the New Testament application of the third commandment, not despising preaching in God's word or his gifts. It's a very dangerous spiritual condition. And it's one in which, you know, those people probably need to actually uh, revisit those scriptures where in the last day they cry out to the Lord and he says, I don't know you. You might know me, but I don't know you. I never knew you. And, you know, you, I think you can, you can even kind of compound this. Like, if you purport to love Jesus and know Jesus, and here he is in his house, near your house, every Sunday, you know, oh, I know you, I love you, I just never want to see you. Okay? <laughs> you know, and you can see that sense in like, on the last day, let us in, let us in. Well, I don't, I don't know you. I, I might have I might have known you a long time ago. Uh, you know, we need to we need to take that kind of apostasy very seriously. I'm making light of it, of course, but um, and this is no, and this is the cross that uh, we bear. We bear a lot of survivor's guilt in this respect because we know it's by grace alone that we're here, and yet we're here. And so this is the cross of our age where you've got this great apostasy taking place and it's a slow, cold apostasy of people just falling away. Remember, I'm reminded of one of the, for, for very, for Jesus dealing with pastoral congregational circumstances, one can hardly do better than uh, the seven churches, his letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And you remember famously, he says, uh, would that you were hot or cold. Now, it doesn't mean would that you were completely against me or completely for me. That's not what it means. But just would that you were useful. Hot water is useful because you can wash things with it. Cold water is useful because you can drink it. What good is lukewarm water? Nothing. You can't wash with it and you can't drink it. And that's that's our Lord's lament against many Christians who have simply become useless. And if they haven't already lost their saltiness, uh, they're well on their way. And they're, what does Jesus say? The, the salt that loses its saltiness is good for being trampled, nothing else. And what about, what about the water that's neither hot nor cold and good for nothing? It's to be spit out, vomited out. You, just in the same way that if you accidentally put the faucet a little too much to the... Well, nobody drinks out of the faucet here in California. Who am I kidding? But you can remember, if you, if you get the faucet a little bit too much to the hot and you're expecting that nice cold glass and you drink it, it's almost disgusting because it's warm, it's not hot. And so what do you do? Yeah, if your sink's right there, you spit it out and get a fresh glass. So the Lord will do. And we ought to take these things very seriously and, and admonish one another and as passionately as we can. But as we all have experienced in our own life and people we know, it's not, um, just because you admonish doesn't mean there's going to be some great turnaround. Now, part of what uh, we find here in Hebrews uh, 10 can help enlighten us in regard to what we find at the end of John's epistle, where he talks about sin leading unto death and sin that does not lead unto death. And remember how he says we ought not pray for the sin uh, leading unto death, those who have committed that sin leading unto death? All right we can see in this kind of soft apostasy of our age where people just slough off and fall away and claim to love Jesus but really don't, uh, we, these are people who are not committing the sin unto death that we can pray for and we can work with and try to enlighten and help. What about someone who, is, who has committed the sin leading unto death and why ought we not pray? Because if you go and minister to them and you try to say, hey, 
Do you not know that the Lord Jesus sacrificed himself for you? They, you know, someone who has committed the sin leading unto death goes, I don't care about that and I don't believe it and I hate and despise Jesus. What about the blood of the covenant by which that he shed for you, for you to have? I don't believe that. I don't want that. It's, it's nothing to me. It's worse than nothing to me. It's evil to me. What about the Holy Spirit who enlightened you and sanctified you and baptized you? May as well be Satan to me. That's the unholy spirit. I want nothing to do with it. Now, you can see how all the ways in which you'd convert this person are shut off. Now, how are you going to go pray for this person? You're, you can't. So I think that this text helps us see and understand the kind of spiritual condition of which John speaks at the end of his first epistle when he says that there are some who have committed the sin leading unto death and for these, I say, you ought not pray. How on earth would you, right? Um, so we can make a distinction here between apostasy of one kind and apostasy of another, apostasy of weakness or kind of a slow apostasy versus an apostasy that's so ironclad, specific, and antithetical to Christ and his means of grace that one simply can't recover from it. The very means by which you would recover them or save them are the very things that they hate and despise. You know, if you've got a drowning person and you're like, here, take the life preserver, and they say, I hate the life preserver. What are you trying to do? Drown me with that thing? You know, you jump in the water and you put it on them and they, you know, claw at your face and rip the thing off and break it in half and throw it away. You just realize you're dealing with someone you can't save. They can't be saved. They associate the life jacket with, or the life preserver, I mean, um, with the very thing that's killing them. So any attempt to put that on is is going to be fought vehemently. What a tragic mental illness that would be, but we see the spiritual illness at work then from which one can't recover. Please. Yeah, I'm kind of new here, so... <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. Was it a, just a, it was a minor apostasy, I guess, yeah. that kept you away these past <laughs> <Yeah>. few weeks? <laughs> yeah. Considering the, everything. Right. Uh, but... Uh, I always appreciated the, I guess it's a parable, and I can't remember where where it's at exactly, but the husband that had to keep taking back his wife and forgiving her. Are you thinking of Hosea with Go yeah. Gomer, yeah. Uh, his wife, who's the prostitute? Yeah. Yeah. yeah thank you. That's it. Um, you know, I can't remember how many times, but it was constant, uh, you know, and I think that's Christ in the church. Uh, that we're constantly having to get accepted back again. Mm -hmm. So I I think that a, this verse a, or parable applies to uh, this situation. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I mean, we want to be absolutely sure that it's not as though God is stingy with grace. It's not as though Christ's blood shed on the cross forgives some sins but not all sins. That's not what's in view here. We know... Uh, yes, with Hosea and Gomer and continuing to take her back, that was a living parable of Yahweh and his Old Testament people. And though they had committed the adultery of idolatry, uh, uniting themselves to demon altars, he nonetheless would take them back when they repented and came back. We can see, too, that, that Christ dies to forgive the sins of the world, all of our sins. And we know that he instructs us to forgive seven times. No, seven times seventy, and if he forget, and if he expects us to forgive so much, how much more will he forgive? Likewise, he, likewise, he says, "Whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out." And so, this is this is my take on this, not my personal take, but I fall in line with those church fathers who see it this way and agree and agree in these uh, with these dynamics, and that's um, precisely one who commits the. Who, who commits the sin leading to death, certainly the sin against the Holy Spirit, um, and then commits the kind of apostasy described here, they're simply not going to come to Jesus. So uh, whoever comes to Jesus, if, if, you know, if you have any desire whatsoever to come to Jesus, if you have even the smallest granule of desire for forgiveness and eternal life, you haven't committed this sin. You shouldn't plague or trouble yourself with it. Uh, you are one of those who has come to Jesus, and whoever comes to him, 
under whatever circumstances he will by no means cast away. He himself says that. So we need to be aware as we discuss these things that the devil uh, has historically plagued many Christians with this idea that they have in fact committed the unpardonable sin, the sin against the Holy Spirit, apost- uh, sin leading to death, the apostasy described in Hebrews 6 or Hebrews 10, and thus no matter how much they desire to be saved, no matter how much they desire to repent and be forgiven, no matter how much they amend their lives, they still hold that they are damned because they've committed this thing. And so given given that dynamic, we want to make sure that we guard and equip ourselves so that we don't fall into that trap of the devil. Uh, that And that's all it is. That's a trap and deceit and sleight of hand that the devil does in order to defile us. Uh, and, and lead us into despair. Okay. So then let's um, let's move on past this part. Then, obviously, obviously, in verse thirty and following, which we didn't spend much time on, there is this idea too that uh, God is not a system. And I think that's important for us to keep in mind. Sometimes as Christians, especially if we spend a long time in the church, it's kind of like we can fall into this way of thinking of like God's a system or a set of rules. And as long as I play by the rules, as long as I participate in the system, all is good. Uh, that's exactly how the apostate people of the Old Testament thought when they just said, well, we'll offer whatever sacrifices God wants us to offer and go on living however we want to live. So here too, we have that kind of parallel and vehement warning to remember that God is in fact a living God and a person, not a system. So, verse 30, we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is a person, uh, It's better for us to think of God as he reveals himself imminently as a person, as having feelings, as having patience, as having a limit to his patience, um, as uh, being slow to anger, but indeed quite capable of reaching that state of anger. Uh, this This is a very biblical way in which we ought to think of God. Verse 32, But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, now this could be generally enlightened by the Holy Spirit brought to faith. Um, in the early church, it's often associated with baptism. To be enlightened is to be baptized. The Holy Spirit coming upon you and enlightening you from within. So recall the former days when you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle. Athlason, from which we get athleo or athletics. You endured a hard contest or competition, kind of riffing on the theme from this last week's sermon. But what was this contest or competition? Well, they have already endured a persecution. We're going to see more of the contents of that kind of bubble up, but he's saying, look, there was this persecution that you already endured in the faith. So take strength from your endurance there and ready yourself to endure again. Recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle or an athletic contest with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Um, the affliction there could, along with the sufferings, um, could very easily be some form of Corporate punishment, public corporate punishment, um, the reproach, the mockery, despising, that kind of thing. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. So uh, there were those who endured these things, but you endured them too because you were partnered with them. I mean, and anyone who's a parent understands this, that very frequently the suffering of others you would gladly exchange for the suffering of yourself, even selfishly, because it's torturous to see one you love be suffered. It's more torturous, I think, than going through it yourself. And so uh, I think that that's kind of implicitly acknowledged here, being partners with those so treated. 
34, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. This would often be the case that they would take away uh, Christians' individual property or any communal property that the church had. There's this great story, I think, I don't know, it's sometimes hard to discern like fact from pious fiction, and also I'm aware that this story is repeated a few times, and so as to the facticity of this or not, I can't attest, but as to the spirit of it, I think it's very representative of how the early church fathers and the early church Christians thought. So under one persecution, uh, and I believe it was Chrysostom, or at least he's one of those that's used in this kind of common story, uh, was told, give up all the treasures of the church. Meaning, empty the church coffers and whatever else, you're being disbanded, and bring it to the state to whom it is owed. So, give up all the treasures or riches of the church. And so he came bearing the poor from the city and the community and the church, and he said, these are the riches and treasures of the church. It's just a beautiful statement. And it, not tongue-in-cheek. You, you wanted what are the true treasures and riches? Here they are, the poor. What a, what a way to think and what a challenge to our modern way of thinking. So there were times when uh, property of individual Christians and the church corporately was plundered, Christians as individuals imprisoned. Just back to 34 so we can pick up the rhetoric. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, better possession than earthly property, and an abiding one, that is to say one that cannot be taken away. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has this great reward. And I find that to be a bit of a, an inclusio from what we initially considered, uh, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without waver, wavering, etc., etc., all the way to verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And what is the will of God? So back to, this is in all likelihood a reference back to verse 7 of chapter 10. And to, of course, to get the full context of that, you'd want to go to verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. What does he do with his body? Verse 10. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And then back to verse 6. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. So the will of Christ is to give his body as an offering in perfect love toward God, in perfect love toward man, and testifying to man of this salvation. So I think here when he refers to verse 36, the will, for you have the need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. That's chiefly to suffer in the body just as Christ suffered in the body and to suffer in love toward God and in loving testimony toward neighbor. Verse 37, and here we are quoting, uh, looks like Habakkuk 2, if I've got my, if I'm reading my notes correctly. Yeah, verses 3 and 4, thank you. Yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Then verse 39, he gives the interpretation or tells us what he means by quoting this. 
but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So if we're to be martyred, we will be martyred even as Christ, the martyr, was martyred. Look at how wonderful the language is in verse 37 where we're quoting Habakkuk. Yet a little while and the coming one. Isn't that exactly what we believe? That Christ comes to us continually. The coming one will come. That would refer to his parousia, his second and final coming. And will not delay. So all we need is to endure what is set before us. To contend in the athleson, the hard struggle, the athletic contest, the spiritual exercise of our faith, even if it means that in the body we suffer, uh, to do his will, our wills united with the will of Jesus, who does his will. All right, so then he takes, he takes us from the horrors of apostasy to the glories of remaining faithful, and that it's not just me showing my personal faithfulness before God. Perish that arrogant and foolish thought. It's me remaining in the faith incorporated into Christ Jesus, who is the faithful one, the martyr, in whom is the will, who gives up his body for me and for my forgiveness, and thus I'm incorporated into this reality and this meaning, and if I perish, I perish as one of the many faithful ones who perish with the faithful one, only to rise just as he is risen and receive the great reward when he comes again. So thus, we live by faith. Now, this puts it in a different context, doesn't it? Because living by faith means might well mean dying bodily. Whereas the opposite of living by faith is to shrink back and thus to fall away. The one who shrinks back or apostatizes, God has no pleasure. But the one who lives by faith, that is, who is willing to engage in the spiritual uh, athletics and competition and keep the faith even unto death, this one gives God great pleasure. This one is in Christ Jesus, organically. So we are not of those who shrink back, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. All right, let's pause there and see if you have any thoughts on that section or anything to add or clarify that I may be clouded or muddled. Okay, so this is uh, the invitation to think, to start to think like martyrs, and to start to think of to start to think of uh, our lives having their shape and form in the life of Christ, the crucified, the faithful one who is faithful unto death. All right, verse uh, 1 of chapter 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Okay, That is to say, if we had the things in which our faith, or if we saw the things in which our faith was set, then we would no longer need faith. That's the point. We would have it by sight, or in fact, or manifestly. But faith is assuring us of things we don't yet have, things we are only yet hoping for because we don't have them. So faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's not uncertain. It's assurance because the one who is promised does not lie. But that's all implicit. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction, again, sometimes faith is seen as like uncertainty or believing things that are uncertain or unknown. That's not right. They are certain, they are known, because faith is conviction and faith is assurance. It's just that we don't have it yet. That's why it's faith. So it's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. Now again, we're laying out a pattern and a type. We're going to see that all the saints of God follow the pattern and type of Christ. And their faith 
is assurance and conviction, but of what they don't yet have. And thus receiving commendation from God. Verse 3, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So here would be the verse for creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. But look what he's doing. He's starting us all the way back at the essence of creation. It's by faith that we understand the word. If, it, if not by faith, we could think that these, that the things we see existed forever. But by faith, we know they were created by the word of God. Everything is seen, was made out of things that are, or not made out of things that are visible. So that is to say, ex nihilo, an act of God, by God speaking. All of this is faith. So our very foundation of creation, how we perceive creation is by faith. By faith, Abel, notice what we're doing. We were in the first chapter of Genesis. Now we've gone a few chapters further. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. All right, let's pause and analyze this. Why so important? Because Cain is the very first martyr. Oh, is the very first martyr. He dies specifically on account of his faith. Oh, sorry, Abel. I misspoke. Abel is the very first. Thank you for catching me. Abel is the very first martyr, obviously. He dies specifically because of his faith. Thank you. So, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. So it's account, on account of his faith and his faith being willing to sacrifice. Are you seeing the martyr themes coming through? And also look at the similar language. You have commendation here and commendation at the end of verse 2. For by it the people of old received their commendation. So the goal is to receive, the, for all of us to receive the commendation of God by being faithful, even if that faithfulness means death. And thus, Abel as the first martyr is a type of the Christian. I mean, he is a Christian, but he's a type and template of what it means to be faithful unto death and receive the commendation of God. Now, look at right after in verse 4, the language of commendation. He is commended as righteous. So look back at verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And we are of those, latter half of verse 39, we are of those who have faith and preserve our souls. So you can see all of these themes being woven together. Again, I don't love the chapter break here because I think it's misleading as if he like clears his throat, grabs a cup of, you know, grabs a sip of coffee, asks if there's any questions and then addresses a new topic. That's not really what's happening here. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 1, flows seamlessly from chapter 10, verse 39. He's describing what faith is and how that faith manifests itself as we read the scriptures, as we see reality, and as we believe in God, even if that means becoming martyrs. And then this is interesting too. God commending him by accepting his gifts, his sacrifices, and through his faith, this is the latter part of verse 4, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. 
I mean, if you go back to the original text, Abel's blood, of course, still cries. You know, Abel's blood is crying for vengeance. We've got that in our hymnody. Uh, but I think, I'm not sure that that's exactly the, the, what's meant here. I think it's meant more to be motivational toward us. The speaking of Abel's blood testifies of his faith and of, of the commendation of God. All right, we shift gears to another figure in Exodus, Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So Enoch now set forward as a template, not of a martyr, but of one who has such exceeding faith that he so pleases God and receives such high commendation from God that he is taken apart from death and received simply up into the heavens. We could spend a lot of time on that. Obviously, this is a type and foreshadowing of the ascension of Christ, who is so righteous and so faithful. He ascends into heaven, having died and been raised. And we could also um, talk, as the early church fathers did, about how Enoch even is a kind of type of how human beings were designed by God to be in the first place, that rather than dying, you simply graduate from your earthly life into a heavenly life, and that without death, but as Enoch transitioned from one mode of being to the other mode of being, that was God's plan for all of humanity, uh, thwarted by our fall into sin and then restored to us by Christ Jesus. But Enoch becomes a, a type, not of a martyr, but of one who so exceedingly pleases God and is commended by God that he is able to bypass death. Which is pretty remarkable. Set forth for us as an example. Good on Enoch? Wish we could do the same. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? That'd be nice. I don't know. I cut, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I look for, nobody looks forward to death and no one's like, oh joy. But I think if there's one rewarding thing about death, you only do it once. So you may as well take it in. <laughs> if you have to do it, you may as well do it with your eyes wide open. That's my view. So, all right, Enoch, what have we done? We've done We've done the creation in general, and then we've, we've zoomed into these men of faith. Abel as a martyr, Enoch as one who pleases God in a superlative sense. Now Noah, verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. And here's the element back that takes us back to verse 1 of 11. You see how wonderfully the author of Hebrews has woven these themes together. God warned Noah concerning events as yet unseen. I love the Sunday school cartoons where they show Noah building the boat in the middle of a desert. Right, God said it's going to flood. That's really a visualization of this verse. In reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Remember why Jesus was heard by God? Because of his reverence. Here it is again. Reverence matters. <laughs> Just, I can't. Because God's a person. Reverence matters. I, you can, you can draw an example of this too, you know, if you're a grandfather or a grandmother or a, father or a mother, your children's attitude towards you, their disposition towards you, matters. If they're irreverent, it's off-putting. Every once in a while, I mean, not any of my kids that you know, but no. <laughs> Just try not to 
try not to condemn them. But every once in a while, there will be a, a young little voice that says something like, Give me some water, Dad! <laughs> now, it would be my good pleasure to reach over and get them some water, and I'm happy to do so, but I'm not happy to do so on account of the irreverence. <laughs> so you might respond to that as a pair with something like, uh, please, and then they repeat, please give me some water, Dad, and then you do so with good pleasure. That disposition and attitude matters in terms of our earthly relationships. It matters also in terms of God, because God is a person. God is our Father, and Christ is heard because of his reverence. And here it is said that Noah is heard, or excuse me, Noah has reverent fear. Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So, you know, look, the gospel doesn't negate the beauty of reverent fear, the piety of reverent fear. By this, he, that is Noah, condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He condemns the, the world in its unbelief. He believed God when there was no evidence by which he should believe God. He proclaimed this to the world. The world did not believe. He condemns the world by his faith in God's word. Despite all, you know, and that's the thing. That's the beauty with Noah. I, parallel to the way that Eve sees the fruit and it's so good and God says, that's death. She believes her eyes. Noah sees a desert, and God says, yeah, it's going to be a flood, and he believes his ears. And so his, uh, his reverent fear, his faith, he does what God says, even though his eyes have no sight of it. And he saves his household through this, but condemns the world on account of their unbelief, and he becomes an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. All right, on to Abraham, and we're just about out of time, so maybe we'll get Abraham, and that's we'll have to call it a day. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. I think he was 75 years old when he was called out of Ur of the Chaldees and down to the <clears throat> Promised Land. So by faith he obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, obviously the promised land before it became that proper, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, more on this next week, but let me try to get you at least to why that's suspiciously written. Um, like, the, why did he say it exactly that way? If you look at verse 13, that's when he finally brings it home. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Now, that line right there, this is kind of genius writing because it makes you go back and reread everything. Because you're going to go, wait a minute, all these promises that they had were only somewhat fulfilled, it fulfilled in a foreshadowing sense, but not such that the promise is in fact received. And they all die in faith, having not received the promise. What would be the application of that for people who are facing martyrdom? That we would die entrusting ourselves to God, realizing that all that he's promised us in Christ Jesus is still yet to come. 
And that we would gladly and willingly do this, seeing that this is how all of God's people have lived. By faith, not by sight. If by sight, then yeah, maybe you go back to the first covenant and escape all this stuff, but then spiritually you perish. So live rather by faith, not by sight. And even if you die having not yet received the promise, well, guess what? Welcome to this great cloud of witnesses, all of whom died having not received the things promised. Okay, we'll go back on this section next week. The Lord be with you.